Well, thank you, worship team. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, as we sung and reflected on that song, Rescue, we know that there's only one place to go for salvation, and that's your cross. And there's only one person to go to, and that's you, Lord Jesus, and you rescue us from our sin. The scriptures say in Romans 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we know, Lord God, that it's not our works, but it's faith in the work of God in Christ. This is justification and true righteousness for us. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Lord God, we know that we can't put you in debt to ourselves. You cannot be put in debt by sinners like ourselves. And since salvation and righteousness comes to us as a gift, we rejoice greatly and we are amazed at your work this morning. For again, as the scripture says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his sin. What a blessing. We come in full assurance with faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. You are our Lord and Savior. We pray that as we look into your word this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, we would come to understand more of the grace that's been given to us and what it means to follow you faithfully. We pray this for your glory. Amen. So, well... Not too long ago, I was on an airplane, and uh, I had a wonderful two-hour conversation with a woman sitting next to me, and it doesn't normally happen to me, just so you know. I usually like to sit in silence and tell people to leave me alone, but (laughs) this particular conversation was really, really enthralling, so I just asked a few leading questions like they usually do to see see people bite, and we were off and moving in like no time in this conversation, and I found out that she was a traditional churchgoer. And, but she was very interested in a lot of her friends' and colleagues' religions, especially she pointed out uh, she had a Jewish friend, and she pointed out her Buddhist friend to me. And, uh, but then at the same time, she also told me about this great Bible study that she was involved in that was led at her workplace by one of her friends, who I found out through conversation happened to be a, a true believer, an evangelical Christian. And uh, so, of course, I told her, you know, my three-minute testimony, as like we're trained to do for short-term mission trips, and was able to give her the gospel in a very clear way, answered a lot of questions, challenged some of her thoughts, taught her the truth about some things, and just enjoyed talking to her for two hours. And uh, to condense the two-hour conversation in just a couple sentences, basically, you know, at the end of the day, I recommended that she attend, uh, because I found out where she lived in a particular town. A friend of mine happened to pastor a church in that town, so I recommended that she go there, and hopefully she went there. But the real reason I bring up this particular conversation is because there was one part of the conversation where she talked a lot about a very difficult thing going on in her life at the time and that she was dealing with. And without recounting all the drama, she had a colleague and a friend, a female colleague and a friend, 
who had recently committed adultery with another one of their friend's husband. There's like three couples right, involved in this whole thing. And they were all friends, but of course now she was concerned because the relationships were really strained because, and devastated because of this affair that was going on. I mean, not only were those two particular families dramatically impacted, but their colleagues at work, other friends that they had. This was a very small town that they came from, so you can imagine how difficult things were. All the chaos, the betrayal, uh, the destruction happen happening, and hopefully, you know, I was some help to her. You know, this is not an uncommon story to hear. But again, this isn't really the part to pay attention to. It's just the backdrop. So she would, though, repeatedly state in our conversation that uh, she was really the only one amongst all these friends who was dealing with the situation in some kind of a loving manner. Now, maybe that's true. I don't really know. But it became quite apparent that she also thought that she was more righteous than her sinful friend. And by the way, she, by the way she described her sinful friend, yeah, she's a pretty evil person, it sounds like. I'll take her word for it. But she thought she was better than her friend simply because she was faithful to her husband. Of course, she didn't come out and say that, but it became very obvious in the conversation that she thought she was a lot better than her friend because she didn't commit adultery. And it also became very obvious as we were having this conversation, you know, remember her religious background and some of these things, that she actually thought she was more pleasing to God and accumulated favor with him because she was an outwardly moral person and she took her church to, she took her family to church on a weekly basis. I mean, she even pointed that out. And so she thought that somehow by doing that, she was actually gaining favor with God. Now, of course, she didn't come out and say all these things, but they're there. And although I think God might have been opening her eyes a little bit on this trip and our conversation together, still, here's the point that struck me in this conversation was that she was sincerely thankful to God that she wasn't like her immoral friend. That's pretty common, actually. She was sincerely thankful to God that she was not like her immoral friend. You know, people often compare themselves to other people to try to determine what God really must think of them. And so they think if they can compare themselves to other people, they'll figure that out. And they can justify then their hopes that they might have for the future or claims or rights that they might think that they have before God. And people tend to be overconfident in the way they truly stand with God. And we'll see this um, and the remedy to this in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 18. It's a common problem. We'll read it as we go, but we'll learn this morning that true, true faith is actually humble before both God and other people, and it's going to trust in Jesus completely. And so Luke, in our passage today, is answering the question, really, what does a real true faith in God look like? What does it look like? And so he would have us consider a couple things. First of all, in verses 9 to 14, this parable that Jesus told about two people praying, two men praying, and then in verses 15 to 17, by having us look at an illustration that Jesus gave with children. Now, where we are in the book of Luke, you know, if you're new here, uh, we're studying the book of Luke together, and we're already in chapter 18, and there's this whole section now that we've been, we're entering into, started last week, really, where we learn about what is true faith. And so there's a passage today we're looking at, and then we come up on some of the very famous stories in Luke that you know pretty well, like the story of the rich young ruler, the story of Bartimaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, and then there's another parable that's told, and all of these teach us 
What is true faith? And again, today, as we look in our passage, we're going to learn what the qualities are for acceptable faith. And those two qualities are pretty straightforward. One is humility, humility toward God and other people. And the second is trusting. Faith, true faith trusts in Jesus completely. So let's take a look at this parable of, of uh, two people praying. So the introduction is quite stimulating. We read off right away. So Jesus, he, that's who we're talking about, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You could already tell this is going to be a great story, right? I mean, what a setup for this one. So Luke introduces this parable to his readers before they really get into it. And we know what he's going to be talking about and having us observe. The parable is especially for those who live in a state of self-confidence that's unwarranted. It's uh, for people who are convinced that they're worth a lot to God. It's a parable for people who trust in themselves that they're super religious and righteous. It's a parable for people who look down on others and think that they're somehow God's special ones. And yet, it's a parable, really, for everybody who reads it, even if you don't fit in that category, because its application will touch each one of us. It applies in profound ways to both those that are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ and to those who are not related to God rightly through Jesus Christ. Well, then in verse 10, we get introduced to these two characters. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. They're fictional characters. Remember, this is a parable. But they're stereotypes, as will become obvious as Jesus tells the story. So they represent the opposite ends of the spectrum, from self-righteousness to a person who is just an awful person in society. And so he picks these two uh, stereotypes from each end of the spectrum to make a point. And as he tells the story, the story is something the people who originally heard it, oh, they could imagine that actually happening in the temple. In fact, it's not, it doesn't even really take a lot of creativity on our part who lived so much later than back then, well, we can imagine this happening because this is what people are like. And so two men go up into the temple to pray, likely at the appointed hour, 9 a.m. or 3 in the afternoon. And the Pharisee, again, he represents everybody who's proud and really self-deceived and how they really stand before God. And then this tax collector, he represents all those people who are humbled already by their sin and they don't know what else to do but just simply to plead the mercy of God. And so that's who we're introduced to, and you probably surmise that as Jesus tells the story, uh, we're supposed to be like the tax collector, not the Pharisee, right? Just so you identify with the right character. That's who we're supposed to be with. So then we see this proud Pharisee praying in verses 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee prayed to himself thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee goes right in to pray, right up close to the holy place, because, you know, he's pretty holy, at least in his own mind. And he prays in the typical manner, most likely standing with his hands lifted up to heaven, praying out loud, but, you know, soft enough so you don't interrupt other people. That's how the practice was at the time. And it's all a very customary approach, and so far so good, very good, actually, on his part. But it just goes downhill from here. And the Pharisee prays, as we should observe, right away. Literally, in the, in the original language here in the Greek, it's, he prays about himself. 
or you could translate it, he prays to himself. I like that one. Or you could translate it, he prays with reference to himself. It, uh, and so your translations will have different things there. Yes, he's standing by himself, but the, the, the language means way more than that. So it's very significant little detail in the story that should not be missed. Because did you notice that this Pharisee in his prayer, in just like two verses, he, he is able to mention himself five times. Five times he talks about himself. That's astounding. That's pretty hard to do, actually. And then he talks about what pious works he does and how he's not really like other people who sin grievously. And he recounts his separation from sinful people, like those kinds of people who break the Ten Commandments. And he lists some of them here. And actually, we should understand that he sees himself as not like other people, period. Those are his own words. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Wow. He definitely puts himself in the top 10% of humanity in standing before God. Maybe he even thinks that he makes the elite 1%. And he begins his list, right? So he's not like the swindlers. He's not like the unjust. He's not like the adulterers. And then he looks over and he sees the other guy and he says, I'm not even like that tax collector over there. Not like him either. He adds them to the list. Do you see that he just thanks God really for himself? That's all he's thankful for. One scholar decides to summarize and translate his prayer this way, and he just simply says, God, I thank you that I am such a great guy. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what he's praying. God, I thank you that I am such a great guy. Contempt for other people is a telltale sign of pride before God. Contempt for other people is a telltale sign that you have pride before God. You know, people pray like this all the time, actually. They just don't hear what they're actually really saying when they pray. Listen carefully. Listen more carefully. Now, it's important to realize, too, as the story goes along, that this Pharisee would have been greatly revered by the general populace, by people. The Pharisees, that was a, a party, of really a lay movement, uh, for spiritual renewal. They were seen as very pious people, very committed to the scriptures, very committed to living a holy life. And in fact, if the tax collector in our story heard the Pharisee pray like that, he'd probably agree with the Pharisee. That wouldn't be a problem for him because most people would have at the time as he prayed. And he would probably add the amen to the Pharisee's prayer. Even what the Pharisee said about himself as the tax collector. He knows who he is. And the Pharisee goes on to talk about how he fasts twice a week, probably on Monday and Thursdays. It's good, of course, it's way beyond the requirement to fast, you know, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the Pharisee says he gives a tenth of all his uh, receives. So scholars agree this is not a reference to what's expected tithing. This is even beyond that. In other words, on top of that, at the end of the year, he counts up everything he owns and he gives another 10%. So he's a pretty holy guy. He's exceptional. And we might be impressed, maybe we should be a little bit. I mean, people certainly were impressed by these kinds of people. The point of the story, though, is, is that he's impressed with himself, and he expects God to be impressed with him as well. You know, so many people pray like this Pharisee, Christians and non-Christians alike. 
They pray in a manner that shows that they think that God should just be stumbling around in heaven with amazement, his jaw on the floor at how great these people are who come and pray to him. That's how he thinks about himself. So just listen sometimes, next time maybe. And then we have the humble tax collector, and look at his prayer in verses 13 to 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So to begin with, we must understand that you know, tax collectors don't usually go to the temple to pray. They wouldn't be welcome. They were seen as very greedy. They were seen as traitors to their own people, seedy political types, immoral people. That is often true. Uh, they collected tax for the occupying Romans, and uh, they also would add a lot of personal benefit to their taxing authority, whatever they could get out of people. So this tax collector is unusual. The Pharisee is sort of normal in the story, but the tax collector, he's really different because he seems to finally see his sin for what it really is. And so he goes to the temple, he stands at a distance, likely in the outer court of the Gentiles. He's fearful of God because of his sin, and he doesn't lift his hands or his eyes out of this thoroughgoing humility. Instead, he beats on his chest in mourning and wailing before God to be merciful to him, a sinner, a great sinner. It's in contrast to the Pharisee, you know, he doesn't articulate any accomplishments that he has to God, he probably doesn't have any, but he sees himself in great need, in really true neediness of total neediness, neediness in his soul. He doesn't pray with pretense, he doesn't have a plan of how he's going to offer up to God some great deeds that he did, but in fact he's going to rely upon God for everything because he knows that God doesn't forgive. He's doomed. And so he doesn't even try to offer up to God, you know, any kind of appeasement in the story. Like small acts of kindness, which surely he's done because everybody does those. He doesn't even offer those. This man you see in the story, we're supposed to understand, is actually going on undergoing conversion. Notice he calls himself the sinner. That's how he identifies himself. He sees himself as worse than all other people, in contrast to the Pharisee who sees himself as better than all people. This man is literally asking for the expiation, the propitiation of his sin when he says, Lord, be merciful. He wants it removed from his soul. He wants sin removed from his life. He wants God to grant him forgiveness so that he could be reconciled and put in a right relationship with God. He's truly repenting of his sin in this parable. And Luke is showing us how Jesus' teaching is really anticipating all of the apostolic preaching and the New Testament scripture that would be written about Jesus Christ. There are important connections to so many other passages in the New Testament here that are, brought, that are alluded to by the words that are used by this man. Passages that teach about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place as a substitute to atone for our sin, to remove it. For example, in Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus said he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9, 
We read, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is all anticipated by just this man crying out for mercy in the word he uses here. So Jesus immediately pronounces the tax collector justified. Justified before God. That he's saved. That his prayer and faith is accepted. Jesus has authority to say that. And he has full knowledge as the eternal Son of God. You know, when we read this and we hear this, oh, this makes sense to us because we have Christianized ears. But it didn't make sense to the original audience because people figured that they were related to God just naturally and that there was this sort of contract of works that everybody kept. And the Pharisee should really be declared the justified one. I mean, of course he's got hypocritical pieces to him but he's the one who's doing what's right. And people today sort of figure the same thing, don't they? That God doesn't justify a sinner, but people who are typically sort of like themselves, maybe a little better, maybe a little worse, but in the same category, that are on the whole better than the rest of people in humanity. That's what the general populace thinks, that it's this sort of unwritten works contract that's out there with God. But as we read earlier, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 makes it clear, very clear, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's how we are rightly related to God. And so as we consider Jesus' parable of these two people praying, Jesus makes it very clear that people who exalt themselves because of their works, they're going to be humbled one day. And that those who humble themselves thoroughly in their hearts, they're going to be exalted one day. But you know, the application is not just for that one day in the future. It's very near, because not only is this parable about salvation, it's also a parable about praying. For the Christian. You see, confession is always a part of our prayers. Humility, that's a mark of true faith. True faith is humble, both before God and before people. And then as we're going to see in a moment, it trusts in Jesus completely like little children. In fact, you could say that that's what exactly what the tax collector did, was trust in him like what we read about next in Jesus' illustration with children. And he says, continues, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, but Jesus called them to himself saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So right away in this story, in verse 15, we see Jesus blessing these children, and we observe another common practice at the time where rabbis, teachers, would uh, bless children. People would bring their babies even, um, as well as young children, uh, to have them touched, to have them blessed, prayed over. Common practice. So when we see Jesus' disciples here rebuking people for bringing their children to Jesus, the first thought we should have is like, why would that be a problem? I mean, this is a very common practice in the time frame. And so we don't know, of course, but maybe this particular situation, the the disciples were in more of a hurry, and so they saw it as an interruption, or maybe they had uh, an inflated view of their own importance. But regardless, in the reasoning, they try to rebuke these people, but it doesn't do any good because they just keep coming, and they just keep bringing their children, as the text tells us. But it provides an opportunity for Jesus to teach what we now have is this well-known teaching on having faith like a child. And so he uses the children to illustrate the quality of faith of trusting completely in him. So over these rebukes of his disciples, Jesus calls the children, you see, to come to himself. So he makes the problem worse by asking the children to keep coming. And Jesus declares that they shall allow the children of all ages. And so here we have even infants and young children. uh, All ages should be able to come to him freely. Jesus is reasoning that the kingdom belongs to such as these, he says. Now, he's not saying that all children are members of the kingdom of God, although certainly many are. And we should encourage childhood responses in faith constantly and accept them for what they are in face value and recognize that children still have a long ways to go in their faith and encourage them to continue to seek Jesus and continue to grow in him. But still, the main point here, Jesus is not teaching about children directly or for children directly. Rather, Jesus is using the children and their childlike characteristics as examples for true faith, for the adults present, to learn something. So he's teaching adults, really. So this passage, uh, just uh, on a side note, this passage, of course, speaks to the importance of children to Jesus, but so many people have tried to hang so many doctrines on a verse like this that this verse can't bear the weight, like infant baptism or universal salvation for all children or pedo-communion, you know, and the list goes on and on. Those are all valid and interesting theological topics to discuss, but no light is shed on them from this passage. And we definitely should not evade the main application in verse 17 by talking about ministry to children. Now, of course, ministry to children is very important. No one's debating that. But this message is not for them. It's for us, the adults, to pay attention. And Jesus would often use children to illustrate many different points and concepts, especially to adults that have become spiritually dense because they need to look at children. Or they've forgotten some truth. And so really, children are remedial instruction for adults who haven't learned to really be adults yet in their faith. For example, if you look back in Luke chapter 9, we observe Jesus acting out a parable rather than speaking about children. He used children in Luke 9, 46, And an argument arose among them, his disciples, as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is he who is great. 
And when we looked at that, we talked about two main lessons, that we have to change the way we see and evaluate one another as Christians, especially those people who we think are the least. And who is really the greatest? What, count, what makes somebody significant? And we also learned and talked about back in Luke chapter 9 that we are supposed to assume the position of being a servant like Jesus to other people. That's where true greatness lies. Well, Jesus' application in our present text in chapter 18 is that people have to receive the kingdom of God as a child if they're ever going to enter it right now and if they hope to enter it when it comes in its fullness. To receive the kingdom means to welcome it. It's pretty simple, to welcome the kingdom. Well, the kingdom came when Jesus Christ came to the earth from heaven. And he started preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's to receive Jesus for who he says he is, Christ, the Son of God. And it's to accept his teaching on that and to put one's faith in him as the Savior, as one's personal Savior. And to do this like a child means with the same qualities that children express in their faith, being children. We've all seen it. Young children who believe in God do so with qualities such as simple wholehearted trust in God. They don't hold anything back from God when they talk to Him. They're open to truth, open to being taught from the Scriptures, being receptive, not skeptics. They receive it. They're eager to learn and te they're teachable, soaking up Scripture like a sponge, not assuming that they already know everything or assuming that they already know everything that's important. And young children grow rapidly in their faith. could even say it's because of those character qualities. They grow rapidly in their faith. And the implications are sort of obvious when you think about it and you think about children and their faith. You go back over these same things and you can ask, are these character qualities that are, would describe your faith? That it's a wholehearted trust in Jesus? Don't hold things back from God? That your faith is open to Scripture rather than being a critic of it? that you're eager to learn something and realize you don't know everything. You don't even know everything that's important. We all have growth in our life to come. And to realize that we still have a lot of growth that we can enjoy and experience in our lives. And though, although faith is to be like a child, on the other end of the spectrum here, we could talk about in its simple trust, of course, but it's also supposed to be growing faith and growing toward maturity and adding knowledge and adding understanding so our faith, as Jesus is talking to adults, it's not supposed to be a childish type of a faith. It's supposed to be an adult faith. You just need to look at the children to learn how to grow up. I mean, you could sort of summarize the whole thing that way. It's just like, become like a child and grow up. That's what Jesus is teaching them here. Our faith is supposed to be an adult faith filled with content and depth and richness and nuances and experiences. You know, so don't misuse a text like this, as many do, to somehow stay ignorant that you don't need to really know much. You can just stay a child in your faith. That's not what Jesus is teaching. We're to walk with God. We're to study his scriptures and to grow. So when we look at Jesus' illustration, then we, should, we can put it into practice by going and look at a child. Maybe you have one. Maybe you have a grandchild. You know? Maybe you can borrow somebody's child. You know? And you could go talk to them about their faith in Jesus. And... You know, my guess is you'll learn something really refreshing when you talk to a young child about what they think about Jesus. Young children can be a great model of discipleship for adults. Yeah, true faith, as we've already learned, is supposed to be humble before God. 
and before people, but it's also supposed to trust in Jesus completely like a little child. And so this morning, you know, we looked at these two main qualities of acceptable faith and explored some others. So Luke's lessons are pretty clear and obvious, really, when you think about it. I mean, we're supposed to trust Christ like the tax collector in order to be justified. And then we can be heard by God in prayer. And we won't pray stupid things like the Pharisee. And if we trust in Christ like the children, in order to belong to the kingdom, then we'll enjoy the kingdom. So this passage actually calls for a lot of reflection, right? I mean, that's why parables are told, especially told by Jesus. That's why he gives illustrations that require a lot more thinking than just simply reading the text. So we have a lot to reflect on in this passage in prayer and with our Bibles open to this passage on our own and rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you so we can reflect upon this passage and think about, well, how do we view ourselves? Are we, do we have too high of a view of ourselves? We can reflect upon our view of God. Do we have too low of a view of God? We can reflect upon our view of other people. Are we too comparison-oriented, even condescending and uncharitable? We should do this because, you see, we often get confused. We can be self-deceived, you know. We all can be. And so, after doing this kind of reflection on this passage prayerfully and the power of the Spirit, the Spirit's going to give us more confidence in the right place, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate point of this text. It's not so we come away with greater confidence in ourselves because we figured it out. Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself for our sins. He's the one that will bring us the mercy of God. And knowing that we're justified in him and not in ourselves, knowing that we grow in our faith, not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus did and continues to do in our life, we're going to develop the right kind of confidence that when we go to approach God, we're going to approach Him because of Jesus, not because of ourselves and who we think we really are. In Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. That's our hope. It's what Jesus did. And then the passage finishes up in the paragraph and says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. See, true faith is humble before God, it's humble before people, and it trusts in Jesus completely. So let me pray for us. The Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming from heaven to earth to offer yourself ultimately the sacrifice for our sins, to die in our places, the substitutionary atonement, the one that we would need. We praise you for bringing to us the truth of the scriptures and the purity and simplicity of the gospel, even through examples of children who have believed in you or this tax collector in the story that you told, that we would understand that it's by throwing ourselves at your feet and begging for mercy that we will be justified and heard, by prayer, and heard in prayer that is trusting in you like little children that we will embrace the kingdom and become its members and enjoy it for now and for all eternity. And we thank you for your word this morning that gives us insight into this. And we thank you for what we're going to do now as your people as well to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate the gospel that it testifies to. Amen. So if those who